When Paul writes to the saints at Philippi, it is a letter written to some of his dearest friends, and it is a letter to a young local church that was birthed through the power of the gospel and is sustained by the power of the gospel and whose only hope for the future is found in the gospel. This is Philippians, and we are Mercy Village Church. You can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. Last week, we went into uh, the end of chapter 3 of Philippians. We started a group of verses that challenge us to not quit, to keep going as we follow after Jesus. There, now, this week, the Apostle Paul is going to build on that, but he's going to add an extra layer to the idea. And I want to explain that with something that happened with my son not too long ago. What didn't happen with him, but it happened at his cross-country meet. They had the county championships. That's right, I'm talking about you. They had the county championships, and they... Uh, whatever, it was at Cabell Midland. And there were uh, Cabell, or, uh, Barbersville Middle School won the county championship. That's exciting. But it, when they announced the winners at the end, there were two runners who I think had finished with a top 20 time who got disqualified. And I was seeking to understand why. Now, my wife had watched the race from up on top of the hill. And up there, the course kind of did some weird, like, crossing back over of itself or whatever, and it was a little bit more complex. And what had happened is these runners had gone out of the course, and they'd been disqualified. You see, it's not enough to just run a good race. We have to stay on the right course. That's the point that Paul is making now. Not only that we run a good race and don't quit running a good race, but that we actually stay on course. Last week's passionate plea to not quit, to keep seeking the presence of Jesus, being shaped by the presence of Jesus, being satisfied by the presence of Jesus, is a passionate plea that requires us not only to not quit, but also to stay on course. We'll go to the end of our passage, and this is an interesting thing about the book of Philippians. There's a couple other books in the Bible where this happens. If you have a, a Bible that breaks it up into sections, you'll see that, weirdly, Philippians 3, that section called, in my Bible, Straining Toward the Goal, actually ends in chapter 4, verse 1. That's just where the thought, for some reason, ends, and so we're actually going to preach today through uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. And that verse says this, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. The runner's equivalent of standing firm is to stay on course, to stay on the right path, to stay unwavering on that course. And so Paul's plea is our main thing for today, that I want us to to take away, and that's this. Yoked up with our unwavering Savior, Jesus, might we be people who live unwavering lives of Christ-likeness. Yoked up with our unwavering Savior, Jesus, He never gets off course, He never 
runs amok, might we be people who live unwavering lives of Christ-likeness. Don't quit. Keep going. And as you're going, don't get off course. Father, today what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We'll come back to this verse 17. I just don't want you to think I missed it. I want to read it now. Brothers, Paul says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. We'll come back to that because he's broken this um, portion here up into two parts. One is a negative example for why we shouldn't waver, and the other is a is positive reality of why we should not waver. But we're going to start first in verse 18 with what I'm going to say. If you wanted to put an outline on verses 18 and 19, put a sentence over top of them, it's this. In our, if our flesh leads us, we will waver. If our flesh leads us, we will waver. The second part is if Jesus leads us, we will stand firm. We will not. Paul starts with an example for why he can say, if our flesh leads us, we will waver. Verse 18, he says this, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now these many people, who is he talking about? In particular, he's talking about those he's mentioned a few uh, sections ago when he said to warn you of these things is good for you and it's not difficult for me. He, he remember he even said, I'm a broken record on this thing. I know I say this all the time, but it's, it's good for you that I do and it's no trouble for me. And then he warns them of those who bring bogus religion into the church and say, hey, additionally, on top of faith in Jesus, you need this, this, and this. They leave the the truth of the gospel behind, and they make it about something else. Bogus religion. You could expand the audience of this verse to anyone who's peddling something other than Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. Anyone who is peddling anything other than Jesus to do only what Jesus can do. He says you need to be careful to stay on course because there are those who claimed to follow Jesus, who are now enemies of the cross. And we as humans are prone to wander. We oftentimes will love the wrong things, pursue the wrong things, chase after the wrong things. And verse 18 reminds us that wayward paths come in all sorts of packaging, even religious packaging. There are, in fact, it can be even more dangerous to us, even harder to discern to us when it comes in religious packaging. Wayward paths come in all sorts of packaging. Hear me today to lift up anything as more worthy than Jesus or to hold tightly, so tightly to anything that it diminishes the beauty of Jesus. That is opposition to the cross what it is. Now, all of us are prone to wander. I am myself. I live in moments in opposition to the cross and in favor of myself or in favor of my own desires, in favor of what I want or what I'm 
chasing after. But Paul is speaking beyond just those of us who waver off the path and then are brought back. And wave, right? That's the story for all of us. Waver off the path, come back. Waver off the path, come back. He's talking about people who have pushed into a lifestyle now where this is who they are. They have embraced something other than Jesus to give them what only Jesus can give them. And not only have they embraced that as their lifestyle, right? In a a million either subtle ways or explicit ways, right? Like, don't be thinking of just whoever the worst person you can think of is, right? Like, this happens in subtle ways. It happens in religious ways. It happens in ways that the world would deem good, where we give our lives over to something other than Jesus to give us what only Jesus can. These people have done that in such a way that it has become a consistent mark of their lives. It is their lifestyle. And Paul says at this point, as you lead others to think that Jesus is less worthy, and as you lead others to diminish the beauty of Jesus, you are enemies of the cross. That's the title that he gives to them. Enemies of the cross. They'd once been in the church, now enemies of the cross. Ponder that today. Does your lifestyle point to Jesus or does your lifestyle point to something else? It's an important question. Paul gives a litmus test of sorts. How do you know if you're drifting off course? He says in verse 19, he describes these folks who have. He says their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, if you kind of tweak the sentence, you kind of can grasp it a little better. Because first you see their mental posture. With minds set on things of this earth. That's their mindset. They're focused on temporal things. What does today have for me is their primary concern. What does this world have for me is their primary concern. Last week we talked about the paradigm of already but not yet. That we have already received promises from God. We have already received transformation of our lives in Christ, but all the promises of God are not yet fulfilled, but they're promised that one day they will be. And so we're in a, in a season of time referred to by the theological word sanctification. We're, be, we're being made more and more like Jesus, but it takes time. Sometimes we love the wrong things, sometimes we do the wrong things, but we're becoming more and more like Jesus. We're being transformed already but not yet. These people don't have that mindset. Now is what they think of. This is the day for them. There is no other thing in front. There is no future promises of God. They do not have the paradigm of the already, but not yet. And they're going somewhere. Paul says that they're moving towards an ending, and that ending is destruction The Greek word is apolia, and it carries with it two ideas, wasted and ruined. The path that they're on is to a destination of a wasted life and a ruined life. As enemies of the cross, that's where they're headed. Think of the wasted life, the regrets towards the end of your days. Some don't even have the regrets maybe that they, they should if they have. But, but what have I given my life to? Have I given my life to things that are valuable, to things that, that matter? 
to things that make a difference. That's the idea of the wasted life. The other one is even more Bible thumpy. It's a hellbound life. Now, I get it that maybe we shy away from talking about that subject sometimes. But it's in our passage today. I can't describe to you what hell looks like because I don't think the Bible really gives us like a blueprint of that place. It doesn't give us like the description. Like Elaine Bennis in uh, Seinfeld. It's been a while since I talked about Seinfeld, right? There's an episode where she's like, uh, she's, uh, her boyfriend is telling her that since she's not Catholic like he is, that she's going to go to hell. So she should be willing to steal the neighbor's newspaper. He doesn't want to do it because he's... But she can do it since she's already going to hell anyway, right? So, And she gets real upset with him, like, you should care that I'm going to hell. You don't care. She's like, all the ragged clothing, this is her picture, all the ragged clothing and the heat. She goes, my God, the heat. Like, that's her idea of what... I don't know, specifically, the details. Here's the point, though. The Bible is clear that there is eternal punishment for those who walk as enemies of the cross. And we should not look past that. We shouldn't excuse that away. Separation from the joy of God's presence in heaven forever. That's intense. That's a big deal. And that should matter to me and matter to you as children of God. And that is the end. Not only is their life going to be wasted, but there is destruction for these people. But look at Paul's response. He weeps and he warns. Paul is an empath. He doesn't get credit for that and he should. He is emotionally connected to these people. He has faces, names, probably shared meals with some of these folks. And he's sad. But his sadness doesn't make him a coward, right? He's still willing to tell the truth. But what his sadness does, what his emotion does, is it lets him tell the truth in love. See, that's, we tend, I'll just forget, I won't put you under the bus. I tend to either be one or the other. Like I'm emotionally connected, and then I don't want to tell the truth because I'm afraid I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings. Or I have to get myself so ramped up to tell the truth that I'd come off not loving and not caring. But Paul says, I'm going to do both. I'm going to tell you that I'm weeping because I am. As I write these words, I have tears in my eyes because I love these people. But I'm not going to be a coward. I'm going to warn them. This is their end. Destruction. He weeps and he warns. Love requires both. Weeping and warning. He does not both. He's tough and he's tender. And he gives this litmus test. He says, this is how you know you're being wayward. Your God is your belly. It's a weird way of talking about it. Your God is your belly and your glory, you glory in your shame. How do you know you're wavering? When your internal desires become a driving force. When what you want becomes a driving force in your life instead of what Jesus wants. Been there? Right? Like, I've been there this week, okay? I've wavered this week, this very morning. 
And two, you start making excuses about it. Calling good evil and evil good. I do. I behave this way because... And you justify it. I'm allowing this to be a part of my life because... And you justify it. That's how you know that you're wavering. They, they've gone even further, right? They are now glorying in their shame. They're not just excusing it away, but the things that they are calling evil good, and not only good, but glorious. They are glorying in what should shame them. This is the negative example. A pathway that, that is uh, opposed to the cross, that leads to a wasted life, and leads to destruction, eternal destruction. If our flesh leads us, that's where we'll go. We will waver. So don't waver, Paul says. And he gives us a positive example, not just because of this, this, uh, these negatives, these cons in this example, but this far more massive pro. Verse 17, he reminds them who they are. But you are citizens. Your citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the context for Philippi is interesting here. It matters to the, to the story. About a hundred years before this letter, there had been a, a huge war in the region of Philippi. The Romans had conquered there. And it was the end of the road, kind of, at the end of the line for a lot of these Roman army veterans. And so they settled down in Philippi. This became their home. Roman citizenship was extended to all those who were there. And this town of Philippi became this weird mix of what I would call OG. That's the cool way to say it, or probably was 10 years ago. OG uh, Philippian citizens, people who had been there their whole lives, Greek in their upbringing, and now these Roman army veterans together in the same place. But they both would have understood this language. This is a powerful verse because of the context as well. Think of it from the the position of the Roman army veteran. Because what he's saying is primarily two things. Your identity as a citizen of heaven is not dependent on your geography and your identity as a citizen citizen of heaven is not uh, dependent on your circumstances. So think of the Roman army veteran. They're not in Rome, are they? They're in Philippi. Do they have to be in Rome to act like citizens of Rome? No. They act like citizens of Rome even though they are in Philippi. Their citizenship is not impacted by their geography. Now this helps in a couple ways because Christians tend sometimes to think the kingdom of God is coming. And while we're waiting... Yeah, who cares? Or they get the opposite, right? You've seen these people on YouTube, maybe. They've got some chart up behind them that looks like a suspect wall in a crime show or looks like some serial killer's wall when they, you know, discover their place. And they are tracking, like, all the prophecies of end times. And they've got a date for you when Jesus is going to come back. And they, you know, they know who the Antichrist is. And it's... Barack Obama, you know, well, they were wrong about, you know, like, like whatever this, like they have this theory out there and, they, and they're just so obsessed with that that they're not loving their neighbor. 
They're not moving towards the hungry. They're not extending. They're, they're not living this life. They've completely shut down, right? Waiting on the end. And Paul says neither of those things. You shouldn't be apathetic waiting for the kingdom of God to come. The kingdom of God is here. You're citizens of heaven, even though you're not in heaven. Live like citizens of heaven. So don't become obsessed with the coming kingdom to the point where you disengage reality. Don't become so apathetic to the coming kingdom that you don't live as a citizen of the kingdom. That's from the Roman army veterans' perspective. Think about it from the OG Philippian citizens' perspective. They were colonized, by the way. And it wasn't without some perks. They did, a lot of them got Roman citizenship. And there were some good things about that. But don't for a second think that that outweighed all the cons, right, that were happening economically for them, culturally for them, as they were colonized by the Roman government. Okay? Their situation, although there were some things they could point to and say, well, maybe that's better now, there were a lot of things that they would point to and say, I wish it wasn't that way. I wish it wasn't like this. But did that keep them from like leaning into their heritage as, as Greeks? They just forget their family lineage and never talk. Well, I guess we'll just be Romans now. No, I, I, I guarantee you. Hellenization, you, you remember that word? This is like the spread of Greek culture around the world. This was the, when the Greeks r- ruled the world. That's what they wanted was to see Greek culture. It, it ain't stopping during the Roman gov- government. Like Hellenization continues because the Greeks value their culture and they continue to value it even under Roman occupation. Here's the point. Your citizenship in heaven isn't dependent on your circumstances and situations. Even when people stand in opposition to you as a Christian, your citizenship is still in heaven. Because we have a different hope. We live as citizens of heaven in the geography of a sin-cursed earth. And we live as citizens of heaven regardless of shifting culture and circumstance. The citizens of Rome, their hope was in Caesar. The citizens, the original citizens of Philippi, maybe their hope was in Hellenization, the preservation of at least some semblance of their culture and, and familiar lifestyle. But the Christian's hope is in God. And His promises never fail. His promises never cease. The psalmist said it like this, Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots. Summon horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Paul says it like this. Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul is unwavering on his course because of the hope of what's to come. Transformation for us and transformation for the whole world. We've come full circle as we close from last week. Last week had a very personal idea to it. Individually, don't quit. Because you are a work in progress. You, individually, are being transformed by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. This week, Paul says not only that, but God is going to transform the whole world. World. The whole world is a work in progress. The world is not yet as it should be, but one day it will be. 
You, Christian, individually work in progress. The whole world, a work in progress. And not only that, but last week we said, not only are you a work in progress, but you're a work of promise. The promises of God apply to all the children of God. And so individually, there are promises that you lay hold of for hope to not quit in this journey, no matter what comes against you. But those promises aren't just for you individually They're for the whole world. The whole world is going to be transformed and made right for the glory of God. It's the whole thing. It's individual and it's cosmic. And that's beautiful. His promises don't waver. And so we can stand firm and we can stay on course. Therefore, my brothers, our final verse, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Don't waver. Stay on course and run the race. Don't quit. So what does it look like for the saints? I told you we'd come back to verse 17. This is what it looks like to stand firm. How do you stand firm? How do you stay on course? That should be the question we should be asking. Okay, I want to run well. I don't want to quit. And I want to stay on course. I want to follow Jesus to the end. He says, brothers, sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Number one, follow Jesus alongside other people who follow Jesus. It's that simple. That's the number one application for you today. You want to not waver? You want to not quit? Follow Jesus alongside other people who follow Jesus. Jesus. How do you identify the people who are following Jesus? Well, Paul's given us a bunch of ways. They look like the marks of kingdom citizenship that we talked about weeks ago. All those different things. The humility of Jesus, the joyful joyful perseverance in the face of suffering, and on and on that list went. All those things. Not just in the book of Philippians, but throughout the word of God. The marks of kingdom citizenship. Find the people who are living that way. And this church is crawling with them and saddle up, yoke up with Jesus alongside those people and follow him. More specifically, an identifier of someone who's following Jesus is someone who embraces the paradigm of the already but not yet. That's exactly what Paul's talking about in this passage as a mark of kingdom citizenship. Somebody who can think thankfully about what Jesus has done and with hope about what Jesus will do. These are people who tend to be more steady, calm, not all the time. I hope not, or your pastor's disqualified, but they're growing in that, right? They're growing more steady. They're growing more calm. They're a voice of calm in, a, in, a, in times of anxiety because they're thankful for what Jesus has done and they're hopeful in what he will do. There's a few little things, too, that I think matter. Just little. These aren't as primary as that idea of being people marked by already, but not yet. But they're kind of outworkings of it. We notice with Paul, he weeps for the wayward and the lost. Might we be people who weep? Not condescending towards the wayward and the lost, but weeping for the wayward and the lost. Might we be marked by that? He, he loves the saints. He, he says there in that verse that he loves them and he longs for them. Might we love the people in these rows and the people who follow Jesus. And he honors the saints. He says, you're my joy and my crown. 
And we honor one another. Paul's quick, and especially in the book of Philippians, to honor his brothers and sisters in Christ. So those are some of the ways that it looks to not waver, to follow Jesus. So lastly, don't waver from the Calvary Road of love. Last week, I mentioned some reasons why we might want to quit. Here's some reasons why we might want to waver. I'll say them positively, though. Might Jesus be our influencer? Might Jesus be our influencer? You want to not waver? Might Jesus be our influencer? That's a kind of a popular word now because we have these social media influencers. That's actually what I'm tapping into when I say that. I don't know who your influencers are. Sometimes you might not even know who your influencers are. Who, right? Like, like your emotional state, who's influencing that? Your responses to given situations, who or what is influencing that? Might Jesus be our influencer? Might Jesus be our governing authority? One way in our current culture that some of us will be tempted to waver really, really quick is to make political parties or political pundits our governing authorities for how we think about certain things or act in cert- towards certain things. We'll take our marching orders not from Jesus, the King of Kings, but from a talking head or a party affiliation or a new, some news uh, source. Might Jesus be our governing authority? How you think about the world around you, might Jesus' voice be the primary voice? On all sides. Might Jesus be our moral compass? Not popular culture. Popular culture's ideas of morality ebb and flow. Sometimes they're right, they, they, they get it right. Sometimes culture doesn't get it right. Jesus always gets it right. Might Jesus be our moral compass? Not generational progress. Not family tradition. Jesus. Not false religious prophets. Just because a pastor says it doesn't mean it should be your moral compass. The Word of God and the God of the Word, might that be our moral compass? And lastly, might Jesus be our satisfaction? I'll close with this, and I think I've read it once before, and so I apologize if I have. We be satisfied with Jesus on the path of Jesus. Don't quit Don't leave the path of Jesus because might Jesus be your satisfaction. John Piper says this in this book, Don't Waste Your Life, one of the most influential books I've ever read. He says, what a tragic waste. And he says that with compassion, not condescension. What a tragic waste when people turn away from the Calvary road of love and suffering because, here's the satisfaction, all the riches of the glory of God in Christ are on that road All the sweetest fellowship with Jesus is there. All the treasures of assurance are there. All the ecstasies of joy are there. All the clearest sightings of eternity are there. All the noblest camaraderie is there. All the humblest affections are there. All the most tender acts of forgiving kindness. All the deepest discoveries of God's Word. All the most earnest prayers. They are all on the Calvary Road where Jesus walks with His people Take up your cross and follow Jesus. On this road and this road alone, life is Christ and death is gain. Life on every other road is wasted. Don't quit. Don't waver. 
50 years from now, might all of us who are sitting in this place say, I'm still walking yoked up with Jesus. I'm being shaped by His presence. I'm more satisfied by His presence. Might that be true of every single one of us today and in the days to come? If you're not a Christian... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's an invitation. You can yoke up with Jesus today by faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. I've gone long, but I want to say with blood earnestness, if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, please talk to me after the service. I'll be here, and I would love to have that conversation with you. Yoked up with our unwavering Savior, might we be people who live unwavering lives of Christ-likeness. Father, thank you so much for the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Thank you for your unwavering life. And thank you that it took you to the cross. Thank you that because of that, we have eternal life. Might we live lives marked by Christ-likeness. And might we not quit. And might we not waver. Keep us faithful to the end. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. And we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.